everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Before we get started today, just want to remind you that we have the Strong Towns Academy now up and running. You can go to academy.strongtowns.org. For a limited period of time, we are offering a introductory priced subscription bundle for $500. You can subscribe to all eight of our upcoming courses. This is an offer that we're having out there for a limited period of time in a limited number. We've already sold over half of what we had set aside for this. And so if this is something you are interested in, don't delay. Hurry up, get your uh, subscription now and become one of the people who are gonna be the first ones through the Strong Towns Academy. Uh, for the rest of you, there's a 101 course that we have available there for free. It is kind of an introductory level if you're interested in getting the background on Strong Towns and the Strong Towns approach, take that 101 course. It's about four and a half hours, 17 different lectures. You can get continuing ed credits if that's your thing. Go there at academy.strongtowns.org and get signed up today. Uh, once the subscriptions run out, they're going to be out. We will then start offering a la carte uh, for the different courses, uh, but you're never going to get it as affordably as you will right now. So uh, don't delay. Thanks, everybody. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. The Grapes of Wrath, there's this scene that has always kind of haunted me a little bit. It it stuck with me, not only because John Steinbeck is a genius and, and his writing is really beautiful and powerful, but because it went against some deeply held beliefs that I had. It forced me to rethink some things that I had long thought to be true. The Jodes, the family that the book is centered around, have escaped from Oklahoma. They've, they've gone west to California searching jobs, going to what they understood was going to be a, a great job market where they could work and get paid and eat and feed their family and take care of things and, and basically start a new life. And when they arrive there, they find that a whole bunch of people, many from Oklahoma, had undertaken a similar journey. And labor markets being as they are in normal times, even worse in the Great Depression, and excess of labor meant that, you know, they didn't have to pay anybody. There was way too many people wanting work and not enough work to be done. And so people starved. They went without. They had immense amount of suffering. And in this scene, you have the Joes sitting outside of a fenced orchard, a grape orchard or vineyard. I, I don't know the technical term. It's not my type of farming. You can picture them on one side of the fence and the grapes on the other side hanging on the vine. And they're starving. I mean, this family is, is starving and they would give anything to be able to just eat the grapes, let alone get paid to pick them and make some money. The farmer on the other side is not able to hire them and is actually just allowing the grapes to rot. Uh, allowing the grapes to be spoiled because there's no market for the grapes. This is the middle of the Great Depression. There's nobody to buy them. There's no one wanting to purchase grapes right now. And so for the farmer to pay them to come in and collect the grapes and process them and do all the things you need to do to bring them to market would just lose the money because there's no market for it. No one's going to pay. And so you have this dichotomy of the starving people on one side who need the job, who actually like could create the market for the grapes, and the farmer on the other side who has the grapes and needs the market, both being unable to, in a sense, transact in a way that in earlier times would have been much, much simpler. The reason this challenged my thinking is because this is, in an economic sense, the case for Keynesianism. I have been uh, lifelong, or as long as I've you know, entertained economic thoughts, had problems with the Keynesian approach, particularly as it is practiced today. And we'll get into that a little bit. But here was like a clear example of where Keynes's insights and Keynes's analysis were, were dead on, were right on. This is an exact situation where Keynes's prescriptions 
were desperately needed and would have actually done a lot of good. Let me walk you through this. If you look at the farmer, the farmer can't process things because there's no market. There is a market, but the market can't buy anything because they don't have any money and they don't have any jobs. The thing is that the economy at that point is stuck. There's a, a downward spiral in a sense, a deflationary spiral to use the, the economist term. And there's not enough capital available for the farmer to undertake this and, and for the people on the other side uh, who are hungry to actually be able to consume or, or to work these jobs. And so by injecting money into this system, by literally like giving the people who needed the food money and giving the farmer who needed money, you could actually restart this market. You could actually create on one side demand and then on the other side be able to fill that demand. And instead of grapes rotting in the vine, you would actually have people employed collecting the grapes <laughs> that could then be used to feed people and have people consume them. And you know, you can extrapolate grapes to all kinds of other crops. And you would have the farmer who, instead of trending towards bankruptcy with having to do something that they absolutely don't want to do with their orchard, now have a profitable way to bring things to market. It was not that there wasn't a market, it's that the market was broken. And Keynes's prescription for this is money. Inject money in the system, get things moving, and it will fix itself. It will start to be, in a sense, money is the lubricant. When you put the lubricant in the system, it gets things working, and all these demands can start to be met. And there's a simplicity and I say that not to denigrate it. There's a deep sophistication to this set of insights, but there's almost like a simplicity to how it actually is enacted in the real world that you get from this very powerful scene in Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. It has haunted me ever since. And it haunted me because it was an instance that was at one very, very vivid and real, but in a second, like also revealed the limits of my own thinking and my own understanding. I had never contemplated such a situation, such a scenario, but obviously it can come to pass. In fact, we're going to talk in a minute how it's coming to pass again. Very recently, oil, the commodity oil, supposedly had a negative value. Um, that's how it was reported in the media. Oil is uh, negative, you know, $40 a barrel or whatever. And with coronavirus, we're having a lot of meals around the table. Um, we do that generally anyway, but with travel and kids' activities and all that, it, it was a hit or miss thing during the school year. Well, now it's every day and it's twice a day. We're eating lunch together. We're eating dinner together. And, you know, it's great time as a family, great conversation. And my daughters, who, who knows where they get their news, TikTok, <laughs> I don't know. You know, my daughters, one of them expressed the notion that oil is free now. Oil is less than zero. They actually pay you to take oil. And maybe we should get some kind of thing and, and fill up our, uh, get some type of barrel and fill it up with oil. And then they'd pay us to take it. As simple as that is, and as wrong as that is, the media reports that I saw portrayed it in that way. It's important to understand what was negative. It was the option price that was negative. It was the option price on the day the options are exercised. For those of you that don't know what options are, the way the options market work, I'll give you a brief, modestly educated overview. Obviously, not an expert. I do uh, occasionally buy options and actually own some oil options right now today, which are not doing well. So, you know, for what it is, I, I clearly am, am not omniscient when it comes to this kind of thing. But the idea of an option in this case in particular is that someone would agree to pay a certain price for a certain amount of oil on a specified date. The options market for oil close once a month. And so on a specific date in April, on a specific date in May, there is a date when we can look and say that is when options contracts will close, futures contracts will close on oil. And so you could say six months from now, I will pay $50 a barrel for so many barrels of oil. You can go out and buy those contracts. Someone will sell you those contracts. 
And they will in turn turn around and actually purchase the oil or prepay for the oil in a sense at that price. They will say, we will promise you to pay uh, for this oil at this price on this day. We can you know, look out and, and the, the idea of the efficient market is that this will be able to price in unknowns and variables and volatility, and we'll be able to make some type of projection out into the future of what the price would be. And then the markets will, as they get closer towards the date, volatility will be squeezed out. And we'll ultimately, on the, the day of the options being exercised, we'll be able to settle up. And in a sense, people will take delivery of the oil at the market price. This is how things are supposed to work. And in fact, this is how things work. It's just interesting to note how the options affect the marketplace itself. Let me give you like a prime example of where options make a lot of sense or or make a market work better than it would if we didn't have options. Say you are running an airlines or say you are running a, a trucking fleet where oil is a huge input to your process. If you are able to go out one month, three months, six months, 12 months, and secure part of your oil supply or your fuel supply through an options contract, what you are doing is you are limiting your risk. You're limiting your volatility. If I can go out and say, six months from now, I will purchase a thousand barrels of oil. Maybe I run an airline and I don't even need oil. I need jet fuel. But I know that if I buy barrels of oil and that oil goes way, way up in price, let's say I buy my option at 50 and it goes up to hundred. Well, jet fuel is going to go up too, but guess what? I just made up the difference in my options price. So all those airline tickets that I've sold six months in advance or four months in advance or three months in advance, I'm not going to lose money on. I have, in a sense, hedged my bet, hedged my gamble by securing myself with this option. And so when we get towards the date or at any point between you know the time of, uh, of getting the option and the exercise date of the option, I will exercise that option. I will sell that. If I'm an airline and I don't want the oil, I want the jet fuel, I'll sell it to someone who wants the oil and in a sense, be able to run my airline with a little bit of surety about you know, what the future holds. If you are an oil producer, likewise, this has kind of like the reciprocal benefit. So if I know that my price for pumping oil out of the ground is $30 a barrel, and I can secure six months from now or four months from now or whatever it is that I can sell oil at $50 a barrel. Well, I work in a marketplace and, you know, it's certainly going to vary based on, you know, the price of gas and the price of other things that are things that I have to purchase and I have to deal with. But if I can take and hedge some of that risk, if I can be guaranteed a certain price and I know essentially my revenue stream for the coming six months... I can plan and adapt to all those other things. There's a certain amount of surety that comes with this. And options provide that surety to allow these markets to work in a smoother fashion over the long term. It's interesting when you layer on what I, I think many of us would think of as like gambling to this. And let's just dispense with the pejoratives. I am gambling on oil. So you know, for what it's worth, I'm not saying that people who do this are bad or immoral or doing something, you know, terrible, but it's important to understand like what is going on. I have myself purchased an option contract on some oil futures and that allows me, I don't buy the ones where you uh, are forced to take delivery. I buy the opposite uh, where I have the option to, uh, to buy if I want, but I don't have to. I'm, I'm, uh, I can sit on the sidelines and just let my money go away. My options expire if I want. I'm never going to be in a force to exercise them. But I am a sense gambling on the direction of the price of oil. I am gambling in my instance that oil is going to go up in price. Gambling is an important part of the market. I'm going to denigrate myself here a little bit by saying my gambling is more pure speculation where people who actually deal and trade in options and futures 
and are in the depths of the market and understand the ebbs and flows of it better than I do. You could maybe say that they are less gambling. They are trading and and they're closer to um, something further away from gambling than what I am. But these people are, in a sense, betting on the direction that oil will go in price. And they are making those bets based on inference, intuition, market trends, other analysis that they're doing. But they're putting their money in place, not because they hope to take delivery of oil and not because they hope to sell oil, but because they believe they have some insight on the oil market that will allow them to profit from the market that has been created by people who actually do need to take delivery of oil or sell barrels of oil. So on top of the actual market for the commodity, you have this and I'm just going to call it the gambling market. You have this gambling market on top of it. That's a market, like I said, I'm participating in. Many other people participate in. And if we're going to defend that market, and I think that market is worthy of being defended, what you have is you have people who, beyond the person with the oil well who's pumping it out of the ground, and beyond the person who needs it at the end of the day for their refinery or their what have you, You have all these other people in play who look at oil markets and they study all the things that go on with oil. They study things like unrest in the Middle East. They study things like trade deals between uh, Russia and China. They study things like the temperature in the Northern Hemisphere. And they correlate all these different data points uh, with what they project the future price would be. And here's the thing. They actually do better than the person buying and the person selling would do. This whole cadre of people that I've labeled as gamblers actually create a better market. They create a market that more accurately reflects reality. I want to float another layer on top of the gamblers, and that is the leveraged gamblers, the gamblers who are gambling with debt. When you gamble with debt, you do something seemingly innocuous at times, but very pernicious. Back in the 1990s, uh, when I was a uh, in my 20s, uh, fresh out of college, had just discovered markets. This was in the dot-com boom. And I knew that I knew something, <laughs> right? Like I had revelatory insights. I-, I knew lots of things. I would later discover how little I actually knew about things. But at the time, I knew. I was very, very confident. I was so confident, in fact, that in my little brokerage account, I'm a saver, so I tend to save monthly. I had saved, you know, by my mid-20s, a little bit of money. And so I had a brokerage account, and I was investing that money for the long haul, using my wits and brains and the knowledge that I had and the insights that I had picked up and the confidence that I had in my own capacity. And as part of that, I started trading on margin. It's very easy to get. You've got to have some money saved, some stock saved, and then they say, here, you can trade with borrowed money. And the amazing thing about trading with borrowed money is that when you're right, you are really right. Like it is a beautiful thing. When you can pick that stock that goes up by 10%, 20%, 30%, when you can get that options contract that doubles in value or triples in value, the money that you borrowed that you're paying, you know, 4%, 5% or whatever it is on is peanuts. And you can magnify your gains in such an addictive way. It literally is like gambling. It, it's an amazing kind of thing. And as a as a mid twenty year old guy, uh, who you know felt very confident about his own abilities and insights and capacities, I was just enamored with with the ability to get a margin account and to magnify my savings in this way. Here's the problem. I'm thankful. I mean, I thank, <laughs> I thank the maker. Many times over that I learned this lesson at age 25 and not at age 45. What magnifies you on the way up destroys you and slams you on the way down. And so if you look at a portfolio that is, you know, half equity, half money you've invested and half leverage, and you start building that portfolio up, growing it, growing it, growing it, 
partially by investing, but a lot by just magnifying your gains. So your stock portfolio doubles. Well, now you can borrow a bunch more money and now it, it goes up another 50% and now you can borrow a bunch more money because you have more there to borrow against. The problem is when this starts to go down, there's a saying in the uh, equities business that, you know, the stock market takes the stairs on the way up and takes the elevator on the way down, meaning it goes up incrementally and then it falls all of a sudden. I was involved in a couple of those falls, those, and, and they weren't even big ones, you know, by comparison, but I got margin called and all of a sudden I am forced to, as a young man, and in fact, I can't remember what brokerage I was using back then. They did it for me. They're like, hey, dude, you know, you, uh, you sign this margin agreement. The margin agreement says that if you're going to get a margin call where we want our money back, because now you don't have equity in your portfolio, you actually owe more money than your stuff is worth, or your equity is getting down to levels where we're concerned, we're going to sell your stocks. Like we have that right. I, I remember going into my account going, where'd all my money go? Where'd all my, where did all my stocks go? And what happened is the market started to go down. Uh, they sold my stocks and then took that money to pay back the debt that I owed them. That's what they did. So you've got the options market, you've got the gambling on options market, and then you've got the leveraged gambling on options market, which is a whole nother like risky, risky set of investments. I don't know as I can defend the margin people. I can defend the gambling because I do see how this can help create a more efficient market. I have a sense that if I were to, uh, to be involved in regulatory reform of Wall Street and of uh, these markets, that one of the things that I would do is put massive, massive limits on margin. But nonetheless, uh, I'm not. And so, you know, you've got this, this market that trades. That one does not include me anymore. I haven't traded a margin for two decades or more. It's something I would, I would not do ever again. Uh, learn my lesson. But you've got that sitting out there. So now step back and look at oil again and understand what happened. You had a bunch of people who bought oil contracts. Contracts that said, I want to take delivery of oil on, I can't remember the date, like April 20th, whatever it was. I want to take delivery of this oil. That's what my contract says. Provide me the, the oil on this date, I will pay this price. Let's put a number on that price. Let's say that price is $40 a barrel. I will pay you $40 a barrel to come and deliver oil to me on this date. Then you have people who did that, but did that with leverage. Like they went out and borrowed the money and they said, give me oil at $40 a barrel on this same date. But when you do that, I've, I've also got to pay back the money. What these people are hoping for is that whatever they paid for that option, a dollar, two dollars, whatever it is, a small fraction of 40, they are able to then basically that will go up and they'll be able to sell that option to someone else who actually needs it at some higher price. Let's say they paid a dollar for that option. So I have an option to buy oil from you at $40. I paid a dollar for that option so that if I take delivery of that oil, it's going to cost me $41. Hopefully oil has gone to $42 or $43 or $44 or maybe $50 or $60 because I can take delivery at $40 plus the $1 I spent on the option, $41, and then I can turn around and sell it to you. Now, I'm not going to take delivery. I'm going to sell you the contract. I'm going to sell you the contract so you can take delivery. And so what you see is that as we get closer and closer to the strike date, to the date that the option expires, the premium that you pay for that option goes way, way down because the bet you're taking goes way, way down. Here's what got messed up. And this is why, you know, they weren't paying you to take oil. What happened is that people had to unload these contracts. Imagine you're like a, a pit trader you know, and you're working from home now, <laughs> sitting on your computer and you own options. You have said that you will take delivery of a thousand barrels of oil. You'll take delivery of a tanker truck of oil on April 20th. And when that tanker truck comes in, you will pay $40 a barrel for it. 
That's, that's the option that you own. You, you own that option. And someone has sold that to you. Someone's like, I am going to deliver you $40. Well, in a normal time, you would turn around and sell that to someone who wanted. And even if the price had gone down, like let's say it's 30, well, gosh, you took a loss. You know, someone's going to get a deal, uh, but you would sell that option to someone else at 30. Well, who wants the oil? Nobody wants the oil. The tankers are full. The storage facilities are full. The pipelines are full. Like nobody wants the oil. And so you turn around and say, well, who, who's going to buy this option? I can't take delivery. Like, I don't have a place to store this. I'm not, I'm not a refinery. Like, I don't own any storage facility. Like, what do I do? And so like, literally think about like a truck backing up and going, here's your oil. Like, where do you want us to dump it? You actually have to, at some point, sell that option to someone who can actually take delivery. And what happened is that the market got so backed up, the paper market, this market of speculators and, you know, gamblers and leverage gamblers got so backed up and so divorced from reality that in order to clear that trade, in order to not have to take delivery on the oil, not only did the traders not sell it at a loss, but they actually had to pay people to take that option off their hands. So not only am I going to turn around in my $40 option, I'm going to sell for 30. Nope. I'm not going to get that 30. I actually paid $40. I've got a $40 option and I'm actually going to pay you $25, $35, $45 to take that option away from me so that you are the one who has to take delivery of that oil. That's crazy. That's crazy. All right. Yes, we've had a sudden drop in demand. It's important to know, and this is kind of where I got a little messed up at the beginning because I actually, when oil dropped, I, I've done this trade for years where I buy oil when it goes down, I sell oil when it goes up, I'm a patient person, I watch the market like go back up and down when it gets in the you know, $45 barrel, I start to buy in a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, when it goes up and it gets in the $70 to $80 barrel range, I sell, sell, sell um, a little bit, a little bit. I just ride that middle wave of volatility. And I'm a patient, long-term investor. I'm not a day trader. I don't need to get in and out. I've got a few different places where I make this bet. I've been very happy doing that. And I've been very comfortable doing that. So when oil dropped way down in early March, I'm like, this is a good time to get in. I'm, I'm a long-term patient investor. I can sit and hold this uh, for a long, long time. This would be great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in and I actually put a lot of money in oil. Uh, and I've been roundly destroyed because before the whole market got knocked out with coronavirus, you had this like price war between Russia and Saudi Arabia. There's a lot of speculation on what this is. There's a lot of speculation on what they were doing and why and and, you know, is it the Saudis? Is it Putin? Is it, you know, what is it? I think the one that has the most credibility to me is the idea that both of these economies hate U.S. shale oil production. And they hate U.S. shale oil production for a lot of the same reasons that in the 80s and 90s, we refused to trade with Europe for like agricultural commodities. The idea that you know, your government is subsidizing something at below market prices and you're essentially driving our markets to lower levels of profitability than they otherwise would. When we look at shale, shale oil in the U.S. runs on debt, runs on like massive, massive levels of debt. All oil drilling runs on debt to a degree. You know, you have people who will make investments. You go back in the, I was going to say, in the olden days. <laughs> Uh, I, I know people who did this. This is why, you know, if you were going to drill a new oil well, you weren't sure if you were going to hit oil or not. And so you would go out and you get a bunch of investors and each would put a little bit in. And then if you, you know, didn't hit oil, you, you know, these people lost their money. And if you did hit oil, they would make it really rich. And you would turn around and sell that find to someone who is essentially more established and could come in and pay a market price and then get that oil, extract that oil of the ground and bring it to market. Because you were not, as an investor, interested in, in bringing oil to market. You were just interested in essentially front-running the bet, the gamble that your uh, strike would strike correctly. 
So there's a lot of debt, leverage, gambling involved upfront in the oil industry. What is different is that the shale oil industry has become very intertwined with leverage debt markets, and particularly junk bond markets. Um, there's a strong case to be made, and let me just make it because I, I actually believe this case. Shale oil people, some will say, well, we can make money at $30 a barrel and $35 a barrel and what have you. And okay, I'm not in a position to, to claim that that's true or not true. I have my doubts. But what is very true is that if you look at the health of these companies, if you look at their balance sheets, if you study their cash flows, without very, very low interest rates, without interest rates that I would peg at below market, below normal, non-manipulated interest rates, interest rates that any other country would have to pay <laughs> you know, to do similar things, interest rates that China or Russia would have to pay or Saudi Arabia would have to pay to do similar types of things, these companies would have an impossible time staying in business. They barely make enough money as it is to cover their debts. It, it seems in many instances that they are using additional debt to pay off old debt uh, without really being able to cash flow the operation in a positive way. Of course, the more you do that, the more you have to do that. That kind of compounds on itself. And so there's this idea, this notion that Saudi Arabia and Russia, by essentially walking away from the agreement they had to curtail their production and ramping up their production, like aggressively, like early March, you have both of these countries saying, we're going to pump millions more barrels a day as the whole U.S. economy is cratered, as oil demand is plummeting. You have these major oil producers, literally like the number two and number three producers at the moment in the world saying, we're going to up our production by 15%, 20%, 25%. This is like insanity from a market. This is the opposite of what you would see in a market. There's a lot of people who say, well, what they were trying to do is just put the death knell into U.S. shale production, driving down the price of oil so far that shale producers would be forced to close. Here's a funny thing. The reaction here was, hell no. Like, we, we won't do that. We're not closing this thing down. And you had the, the leadership in Washington, D.C. saying, we'll do whatever it takes to keep the, uh, the shale oil people pumping. You had, you know, the Federal Reserve lowering interest rates, buying up all these junk bonds to keep the rates from going up because they should be going up because this is junk bonds. Like it's bonds that are not going to be paid back if the companies go bankrupt. And so in order to uh, tamp that down and limit the possibility of that happening, uh, they go out and buy all that junk bonds. Uh, they basically float everybody, keep them going. And so you have a thing where leading up to this April 20th date, we're all pumping full bore. It's almost like a game of commodity chicken. How much can we pump and who's going to blink first? It's funny because I, I put my mind in the you know mindset of one of these shale oil people. And I think, you know, what, what were they thinking? The reality is, is they had very few options. You either, in a sense, like pump or die. You get to a point where like prayer is the market strategy for you. Because for a lot of these places, if you stop pumping, you lose the rights to your well. It reverts back to the landowner, like it goes away. Many of them also, if they stop pumping, they will have no cash flow. And because they have massive debts, because they have these massive leverage bets, without any cash flow, they're not going to be able to secure the next round of funding that they need to pay off the last round of funding. And so by not pumping, you essentially commit suicide. You have been forced to get off this monetary you know, financial treadmill and you're done. You're done. And so in a sense, like I was thinking about like, what must this be like? And you must be hoping that, you know, as you're pumping this at this massive loss and you know that like, this is not a strategy that's going to work, you must be hoping that like, there's a war in the Middle East uh, or some like, you know, 
oil field blows up somewhere. You've got to be hoping that something happens, something catastrophic and terrible happens to offset what seems to be the inevitable insolvency of your position. Of course, like none of that happened, right? And so we had this blow up. We have a bunch of oil. We don't know what to do with it. And we're still pumping and still pumping. There have been hundreds of wells now taken offline. And even more wells will come offline in the coming weeks. And ultimately, it feels like, and yeah, it's anyone who tells you, here's what's going to happen. <laughs> I saw this one thing where they had all these different investment banks with their forecasts of what would happen in the next quarter. I mean, it was a random number generator would have been as accurate as this. I mean, nobody knows. And anyone who pretends that they know is a fraud or a fool, right? Like nobody knows. I don't know what's going to happen by any degree. But it feels like we are going to be left with no discernible shale oil industry here in just a couple months at the most. Right now, if the U.S. shale oil industry went away and Saudi Arabia and Russia and a, you know the North Sea and a couple other places were like all that was left, you would still have to curtail production based on current demand. Anyone who's projecting a shale oil industry in the U.S. is projecting something like a V-shaped recovery in the economy once you know, these stay-at-home orders start to be lifted. I don't know. I mean, are you confident in that? I'm not confident in that. That seems crazy. If I had to bet today, I would bet we have no shale oil industry. And here's the shame in that. Here's the shame. And here's the point that I want to make that that ties to the Jodes and to um, the Grapes of Wrath and the whole story I started out with. You look at this, and this should not have happened. The feedback loops in our system have broken down. And when we look at the shale oil industry and we look at the marketplace that it operates in, this distorted, subsidized, let's buy up all the junk bonds and keep the rates real low, let's keep everybody in business, it's a market designed to not respond to feedback or to have a very, very long feedback loop between the time when you should have got the signal to slow down or stop drilling or like do something different and the time you actually were able to do that or were ultimately forced to do that. We have created what in economic terms is often called malinvestment. We've created malinvestment because we were trying to create an efficient market, because we were trying to make the market optimized, because we were trying to make the market hyper-efficient. We created malinvestment. We, We drilled more wells than the market could support. And even before the quarantine collapse and you know exposed all the fragility in the system, we were not geared up to respond to price fluctuations, except on a very, very long and now obviously very, very painful feedback loop. This is not how you want to run an economy. I want us to think a little bit about the businesses that we choose to let fail and the businesses that we choose to rescue and how we go about doing this. Because bailouts ultimately do one thing. They rob a system of feedback. As nasty as bankruptcy is, I'm not going to like downplay what a deflationary spiral is like. I've never lived through one. I've certainly read about them in the history books. They're supposedly very, very painful. Economists deathly fear deflation. They don't fear inflation nearly as much. I have read that deflation basically brings people together in shared hardship and inflation drives societies mad. I feel like we've been living through decades now of inflation. I know that, you know, we're being gaslighted by all the people who tell us like, no, there's no inflation. Okay. (laughs) You give a bunch of money to rich people. And uh, what do you see? Uh, The things that rich people want go up in price. So stocks go way up in price, you know, divorced from any economic reality. Fine art goes way up in price. Luxury homes goes way up in price. Yachts, uh, air, you know, private jets, these things all like skyrocket in price. If you look at them, they've gone up multiple times the rate of, you know, quote unquote inflation 
because that's where the money's gone that we printed. Um, we gave it to rich people and they did what rich people do. Uh, eventually, like those things maxed out. And then what did you see? You saw rich people putting their money into housing. And so, you know, I'm in the little town of Salida, Colorado, and you have a decent percentage of the homes in that. And certainly the market makers in that market being investors who are buying up Airbnbs and other rental properties sight unseen from out of town because they're good investment opportunities in a place that's growing. <laughs> We've not experienced inflation. All right, fine. Okay. Your Fruit Loops have not gone up in price, but your college education, your healthcare have. All right. It feels like we're being gaslighted in a sense. But let's talk about the idea of a bailout as something that robs our system of feedback. Housing is a great example of this. You look at the way we have constructed our housing markets. You look at the way we have set up the system. And you have this incredibly long feedback loop between what people have the capacity to pay and what prices actually are. There's a whole industry of people that have grown up around this to explain affordable housing and you know how zoning has created these price distortions and how we need to do things like rent control and inclusionary zoning to create fairness in housing. I feel like this is a very simple story. We've pumped tons of money into housing. We have not only artificially lowered interest rates, but we've lowered the cost of entry into housing. We've made housing into an investment. We've taken and put that investment into a marketplace that has further drove capital into a system that capital used to flow much more close to home, much more localized, and now can just be turned like a flood, like a massive fire hose on wherever it needs to go. You can take things like, oh, why am I forgetting the name of the program? The Opportunity Zone? Yeah, that's the one and just flood a zone with capital. And we're shocked when like housing ends up to be massively distorted in price. This is a, a long feedback loop. A short feedback loop would look like, here's what the person here can afford to pay. Here's what the price ultimately would then be. And you would see things adjusting much more rapidly and much more real time if the loop were much shorter. But what you would have is you would have much lower prices you would have prices that actually reflected the reality of humans on the ground as opposed to what you know we need for gdp what we need for stock prices to go up what we need for bond market and and mortgage backed securities market to go up what we need to justify more home builders and more home building and you know just go on and on down the line of all the things that are related to the housing market when ben bernanke said the us economy is the housing market it was like not an exaggeration and the idea that we would have, between 2001 and 2008, created what we universally call a housing bubble, and then see between 2010 and 2020, us reach that same height, and even in some markets, 10, 20, 30% higher levels, and we call that a housing recovery, shows you the narrative that we tell ourselves. Like I said, Deflation is supposedly brings us together with shared hardships while inflation drives us insane. I feel like we've been gaslighted with inflation and driven insane to the point now where there's people here listening to this today are saying, Chuck, you're crazy. You know, we have no inflation. We should be printing way more money and doing way more of this because we're in a crisis. We're in an emergency. Like, okay, I get you. Like, we're going to run that experiment. You can argue with me and I can argue with you and it's, it's not going to matter because that's what we're going to do. We're going to run that experiment. We're going to test it. We're going to see what happens. This brings me to what I want to talk about next, which is food. I was thinking about the Jodes and oil and the grapes of wrath and the whole thing because last week in the paper, there was a story here in Minnesota about a farm where they euthanized over 60,000 chickens. Now, why would you euthanize 60,000 chickens? These were egg-laying chickens, so they're not the kind of chickens that you eat. For those of you not familiar with chickens, there are different types of chickens. Some are eating chickens. They're actually really gross. They get very fat and bloated very quickly. They don't live very long, but they taste very good. Egg-laying chickens are, in my opinion, more beautiful. <laughs> they're more like what you would think of as a chicken. 
They are designed to lay eggs. Industrial chicken farms have chickens in these big barns, in these little cages. They lay eggs. The eggs are collected. The problem is, it's funny because I've gone to the grocery store a while back, like four or five weeks ago, and there were no eggs. Like the eggs were gone, along with beef and a bunch of other stuff. Like there was a run on the grocery store and there wasn't any of these things. Supposedly they have eggs again. We get our eggs in a different place, but, you know, have gotten them from the grocery store. I know we tried to order them once and uh, there were none. But supposedly they have eggs again now, but for a while they didn't. It's astounding because we just euthanized 60,000 chickens. There's a lot of people who need food right now. There's a lot of people who are desperately struggling for food. There are food programs here in my hometown that are over capacity and struggling. Could we not get people eggs? Again, the Jode situation, looking at the grapes withering on the vine, starving. Could we not do something here? Is this a Keynesian moment? And the interesting thing is the humility that the story of the grapes taught me. I'm going to try to keep here, but I think the lesson is the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite one. It's not one where more money would actually fix the problem, even though that's what I think we're going to do. It's not a situation where more money would fix the problem. Let me elaborate on that, but I'm going to give you another one. There was a, another story in the paper after the chicken one where uh, farmers here in Minnesota, hog farmers, have their hogs ready to go to slaughter. You, you raise a hog, you feed them. There's a certain mix of feed you give them so that the meat tastes really good. You get them to a certain maturity and then you send them to market to be slaughtered. People purchase them and bring them and, and they're slaughtered and they're turned into uh, ham and uh, bacon and all kinds of great pork products. I grew up on a farm, so I get like this to a degree. Here's the problem. You can't keep a pig that is like ready to go to market. You can't keep them for weeks and months. Like it doesn't make any sense. First of all, the meat doesn't get any better. It's like you grow an ear of corn and the corn's ready to be picked. You can't just like let it sit there on the corn stock for two months and then pick it when the market is better. Like you have to pick it when it's ready to go. A hog is that same exact way. Like you have to send the hog to market when it's ready to go, or you're just going to be feeding it for weeks, for months, ostensibly because you hope to get a higher price in the future. You hope there's demand for it in the future. What if there's not? You're just pouring good money after bad. Also, it doesn't be like suboptimal meat. Like you're actually declining your product as time goes on. And so this article in the paper said, if something doesn't change here, we're going to have to slaughter a whole bunch of these hogs. Like we're going to have to kill in our barn, all these hogs, dig a big hole and bury them. Why? Why? And I want to explain to you why, because it's it's the exact opposite of the grapes of wrath situation, the exact opposite of the Joe situation. And pumping more money in the system will not solve this problem. In both the chicken case and the hog case, what you have is you have farmers who have made agreements with national franchises, national chains. My wife had an uncle who was a chicken farmer and did eggs, and they had an agreement with McDonald's. I don't know where the 60,000 chicken person had their agreement with, and I don't know where the hog person had their agreement with, but you can think of like McDonald's as a proxy for this, as like one of the one of the types of businesses that you would have. And what McDonald's does is McDonald's goes out and they'll say to this farmer, like, we will buy all the eggs you produce and here's how much we'll pay you for it. And for the farmer now, it's a great deal because the farmer has been gone through decades of market volatility and, and being ground down financially. I know in the chicken business, before they had the McDonald's contract, they would have a good year and everybody would get Christmas presents and they'd buy a new car. And then the next year they'd have a bad year and they'd be like <laughs> barely scraping by and, you know, very volatile type of way to make a living. Well, all of a sudden McDonald's comes in and says, we're going to give you a contract. You're going to get a steady income. We're going to buy everything you produce. And, and that's what we'll do. And you produce for us. And, you know, we'll come pick up your eggs. You can do this with milk. You can do this with pork. You can do this, whatever. And it's not just McDonald's. It's many different companies like this. These, these corporate, again, securitized, financialized, Wall Street money coming in, efficient economy. This is all like incredibly, incredibly efficient. Here's the problem. 
shut down your economy or have an economic slowdown. And all of a sudden, McDonald's doesn't need the eggs. All of a sudden, like Perkins Family Restaurant or Denny's doesn't need the eggs anymore because they got nobody coming to get food. What do you do? What do you do? Well, yes, you have a similar situation where you have the Joads on one side of the fence looking at the chickens, wishing they could eat the eggs, looking at the hogs, wishing they could have that bacon or have that ham. You, you've got that situation right now. Like that's, if, if we're going to do a modern version of the Grapes of Wrath, like you've got the same situation. Just step back and look at it. There it is. There it is. But it's not a lack of money. Both of these places have money. What it is, is it's a market that is too efficient. It's a market that has been rung too tight. If that farmer were selling eggs to a local market, if that farmer were not selling 50,000 eggs to McDonald's, but instead had a farm where like farms used to do, had a variety of things that they were selling to a localized market. Yeah. Are people here still eating eggs? Absolutely they are. We have eggs all the time. Are people in my neighborhood eating eggs? Yes. Are they going to the grocery store buying eggs? Absolutely. Do they have money to buy eggs? Yeah. It's not a big deal. Does the farmer want to sell those eggs? Yes. Yes, they would love to be able to do that. They have capacity to do that. But because of the way the market has been configured, because of the hyper-efficiency that's been put into place, there's no mechanism for them to adjust, adapt, and change to changing market conditions so that they can serve that need. They have become too efficient. Because of that efficiency, they have lost their adaptability. They've lost their flexibility. They've lost the capacity to adjust to stress and feedback. Here's a question then. Who should get the bailout? Do we go in and as we're prone to do right now, as we're kind of wired to do right now, working on the derivation of a derivation of the derivation of the Keynesian insight on Jodes and the grapes? You know, that if we just pump money in this economy, if we just give both sides of the equation a little bit more money, that will make things work. It will create the lubricant and get things flowing. Do we go bail out the farmer? They're going to destroy their chickens. They're going to kill off their flock. They already did. The hog farmer is going to kill all their hogs because there's no market for it. Do we go in and give them money and keep them in business with this model? So that when the V-shaped or U-shaped or W-shaped or whatever shape recovery we get, we ultimately get back to buying things at McDonald's again or buying things at Denny's, that there'll be a farmer there who can still exist, who can fill that need. Do we go and bail out McDonald's and bail out Denny's and bail out all these places who have these hyper-efficient business models? I've followed McDonald's for years. I think McDonald's is one of the worst-run corporations in the country. I think that the way McDonald's has taken their free cash flow, if you look at McDonald's, they have had declining revenues for years, yet their stock price continues to go up because they have borrowed money. They've used that money to buy back their own stock and pump up their own price so that their executives can get massive bonuses. Should we go bail them out now? Should we say, well, no one could have anticipated this coming. No one could have seen this happening. And maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. Maybe at the end of the day, we could say that that is a true statement. And I've seen good, decent people look and say, no company should go out of business now because no company could have seen this coming. No company could have prepared for this. No company should have prepared for this because if they had, that would have been a bad use of capital. Maybe that is true. Is that the way we want our system structured? And I think the fascinating thing that we're looking at here today is that the more we go down this path, the more we kind of reflexively follow the let's bail out the next loser, let's bail out the person who couldn't have seen this coming, let's make this, the more we prevent the necessary restructuring of our economy. That local farmer who just euthanized 60,000 plus chickens, the farmer who's going to euthanize barns full of hogs because the market is broken for them, what I would like to see happen is I would like to see them retooled. I would like to see their business changed. I would like to see them become 
more adaptable, more flexible, have a more diverse product set that they're offering. I think that that would be less efficient. I think that would mean food would cost more. I think that would mean that people would have to get paid more to do a more nuanced kind of work on a farm. I think that that would mean more localized markets. And so I think it would mean uh, food production that varied over the course of a year. It would mean food might be a little bit different in Minnesota here than it would be in Texas or it would be in Florida or it would be in Massachusetts because you'd have, you know, different growing seasons and different harvesting seasons and different kind of ebbs and flows. It would mean, it would mean a little bit different market. It would mean a market that had maybe day to day a little bit more volatility because, you know, if we have a bad crop season here, prices may go a little bit up because we'd have to bring things in from the outside. If you had a bad season somewhere else, you know, maybe some of our surplus would, would wind up there, but it would be a predominantly localized market. How do we get to that? I think there's a lot of you listening today. It was like, I'd like to, I'd really like to get to that, Chuck. That would be great. How do you get to that? I'll tell you two ways you don't get to that. The first way you don't get to that is by subsidizing the current approach, by going in and bailing it out and propping it up and saying, let's just get through this hard time. And then on the other side, when we get our U-shaped recovery or our V-shaped recovery, we'll pick right back up where we left off. Here's the other way you don't get it. You don't get it by having the smart people, uh, which has kind of become my like slang for the, the people who like top-down centralization and think they know how to make this whole thing work. We don't wait for the smart people to figure it out and to direct it from some central location and say, okay, uh, you farmer who used to do chickens, now you're going to do corn and sugar beets and a little bit of oats. And um, you're going to have some chickens and some pheasants and some hogs. And here's the mix. And here's the proper thing. And here's where you're going to go. No. Do you know how this works out? Do you know how this fixes itself? And this pains me to say this because I'm not discounting the horror that is going to happen to bring this about. The way this works out is that this whole thing fails. This whole thing goes bad. And that farmer or whoever comes after that farmer is left with a localized market, a localized demand, and they adjust, they change, they adapt. I'm not suggesting that's going to be easy. And I'm not suggesting that's going to be fun. You look at oil selling on the options market, you get this like all of a sudden surge overnight where it goes from $30 for an options contract to minus $45. And you're like, how in the world could this happen? It happens because we've lost all the feedback loops. We've driven them all out. We have a market that is not actually responding to people's needs. It's too distant. It serves too many masters that are not the actual consumer. And you see it come to the fore in things like this oil transition. We're like market feedback long ago should have adjusted this system. It should have fixed this. So this didn't happen, but it didn't because all the incentives in the system are wrong. It's spring in Minnesota and we have not reached the point where we can plant yet, but I've actually gone now to my parents' place. I grew up on the original Marone homestead homesteaded by my great-great-grandparents in the early 1900s. Uh, I've actually gone back to this place now where my parents still live and said, hey, I need to build a garden. They have always had a garden. I grew up with gardening and, you know, the whole farm, we had, we had pigs and cows and, you know, chickens and what have you. But everything has shrunk now. My brothers and I are all gone. My family doesn't farm it anymore, but they still have a, a garden. And I've spent the last two weekends out tilling, cleaning up sod, basically creating a new garden um, next to their garden. I'm doing this because I'm worried. I see the feedback loops. I understand, and I used the word horror a couple minutes ago. I, I, I don't think that understates it. I told my wife, I said, I'm, I'm worried about people not having food next winter. And she said, that seems crazy. Like that, that seems really out there. I had to clarify. I said, you know, if you'd force me to bet, like bet that there will be food or there won't be food, I would bet that there will. Like if it's a binary bet. But the reality is, is we go back a year and you say, what are the odds that there's no food to chuck in 2019? What are the odds that there's no food in 2020? I, I say like 1%, a 
less than 1%, half a percent, a quarter of a percent, like very, very tiny. Well, what are the odds of that today? I guess a hundred times that, you know, it's 10%, it's 15%. It's, it's not like an outside roll the dice kind of scenario now. It's one that's actually in play. I don't like life or death scenarios that are in play. And so I, I'm planting a garden. I'm planting a garden. I heard the other day, and I'm going to close with this. I heard the other day someone talk about the 1918 Spanish flu. And they said, you know, after the 1918 Spanish flu, uh, we had the roaring 20s. Uh, we had this great period of recovery. And so it's, it's very likely that history will repeat itself, that we will have the coronavirus and we'll have whatever economic malaise comes along with that. And then as soon as the quarantines are lifted, as soon as we can get back to work, we'll have this really robust recovery and we're going to have a decade like the roaring 20s. This was a commentator, I think it was on TV. I don't know. I don't watch a lot of TV. It might have been on a, on a video somewhere. I was just astounded with this. I, I just, I was like, I, I didn't know where to start to even like push back on the sheer stupidity of such a statement. The Roaring Twenties <laughs> were great for everyone who lived through them and then had a natural, like happy existence in death before 1929. Because in 1929, you paid the bill for the Roaring Twenties. You paid the bill for all the stock market speculation. You paid the bill for all the craziness. You paid the bill for all the parties. And you had 10 years of depression plus. And then you had a global war tacked on the end of that. I think that anyone who's embracing this idea of top-down efficient systems creating some type of stable situation that's going to bring us prosperity just does not understand the fact that this stability is just pushing off the volatility. It's, it's suppressing the earthquakes and making them bigger. If we have localized systems, we don't get the growth. I agree. We don't get the craziness. We're not going to get the roaring 20s. But what you would get is something that is going to be stable, something that is going to be adaptable, something that will actually be there when you need it. This is Taleb's idea of anti-fragile, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, the idea that you know we should build systems that when they're stressed become stronger, when they're stressed adapt and change and meet our needs. We have eliminated these feedback loops and so our systems have become fragile. This fear that we're experiencing right now, this, this huge amount of change is the seismic earthquake because we've allowed all this pressure to build up. If you can't handle that, and I can't handle that, I don't know anyone who can. This is, this is not the way we want to engineer and create a society. You have to open yourself up to the idea that the alternative, the only viable alternative is not suppression of this volatility. It's not like, please make it stop, like just come in as a strong man and fix this whole thing. It's not some top-down bailout that just extends the problem. It's not the roaring 20s that we should be after. It's a stable set of localized systems that grow stronger and more prosperous over time in response to what our needs are. It is more localized feedback loops. It is a system designed to respond to us. Be careful what you wish for. The Roaring Twenties might have been a lot of fun. And my, my daughter's actually been talking about flappers lately and how the Roaring Twenties were great. Nothing's free, my friends. We got to work at this. I think for too long we've thought, you know, that things should come easy, that things should be free. Because it felt like they were. I mean, we, we were able to deliver things seemingly for free. And we're paying the price for that now. I want to get that price over with, and I want to start building something real. I want to start building a nation of strong towns, strong and prosperous places. Take care, everybody. Really, take care, be safe, be healthy, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Thank you.
Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.